Perhaps one thing that makes the uh, argument so strong of the authenticity of the Scripture is that it just tells it like it is. Um, who, who is. There is a story about an artist's commission to paint the portrait of the king. And as he painted this portrait, he, he just kind of painted over the warts on the king's face. And when he presented the portrait... The king looked at the, uh, the portrait and he said, When I commission you to paint a portrait, I want you to paint the portrait, wart and all. The Bible didn't paint over the sin that is in the life of the people, the, the heroes of the Scripture. It didn't paint those things out. It's just there. And so you have the drunkenness of Noah and you have the... Um, weakness of Samson, and you have the, uh, the lust of David, and you have the cowardice of Peter and the impatience of the apostle. You just have them painted, wart and all. And when you come to this story, after, especially as it's set right in the context of the great triumphs of the church, I mean the church has just began with an explosion at Pentecost, and the Spirit of God is upon that church and is doing wonders and signs and miracles in their midst. And thousands of people are responding to the gospel and are being saved daily. And right in the middle of that boom, you find the picture with a ward on it. You find this man and, his, and this woman committing this terrible sin in the church and the tragedy of it all there. You just see it there, ward and all. Sometimes I think God does some things just to really shock us to reality. Uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of, you know, God kind of has to get us by the shoulder sometime and kind of shake us a little bit. Um, I remember not too long ago I preached the funeral of a man exactly my age. And as I um, stood there to preach that funeral, all of a sudden, you know, just kind of dawned on me as though God spoke some way. You know, it's like he, like he said it audibly. Said, you know, I was standing there preaching that man's funeral, exactly my age, and somebody said in my little ear, that could be you. I suppose that the last place we like to look and find ourselves would be in a coffin. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this uh, movement of the Spirit of God upon the church, God gives this dramatic experience in the church. And these two people die right there in the presence of the church. Vance Havner asked this question. I just got to ask you tonight. Vance Havner asked this question. What if God dealt with your hypocrisy today as He dealt with it in the early church? Man, what a question. What if God judged your hypocrisy like He judged Ananias and Sapphira? Vance Havner goes on to say, If God judged our hypocrisy and our deception as He did in that early church, we'd have to have a mortuary in, in the basement of every church. And if that were true, if, if, if He judged us as He judged these in the early church, probably there wouldn't be a preacher in this pulpit and there probably wouldn't be many of you in the pews. 
That cuts, doesn't it? I want us to get together and I want us to find out this story that's told so often and we just kind of, you know, rush right past it. How many sermons have you ever heard on this text? I remember as a small lad hearing the sermon preached on Ananias and Sapphira preached one time. Brother, did it make an impression? I still remember. I don't know if I've ever heard another one on it. I want us to just get together around the Word of God, make some discoveries tonight that might really hit home. In the fourth chapter and in the end of it, there is a beautiful mural of the church, a picture of the church, a portrait. Beautiful is that portrait. Things are happening in the church that, uh, that reveal tremendous transparency and basic honesty. And the people are loving each other. What a koinonia. And they're sharing with one another. And there's transparency and there's honesty. And then in the midst of that picture is... Uh, is a man standing there in the middle of the portrait, in the foreground of it. His name is the Son of Encouragement. He's Barnabas. We're going to see him again and again. Son of Consolation. This marvelous man with transparency and honesty has this property and sells it, brings it and lays it at the apostles' feet. Nobody is hungry. Nobody has need. Because as they sense that need in the people, they meet the need there. There's no uh, government agency, no uh, welfare, no social security, no nursing homes, no nothing. Just the church taking care of each other. And then there is the sin. I want you to look with me again at verse 1 of chapter 5. There is the sin. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife, etc., I want us to try to get a picture of what happened. Let's just suppose, you know, for, uh, for help so we can kind of understand what's happening. Let's just suppose that they had this piece of property and they sold it for $3,000. Now, I think we need to, to understand that, that, you know, that this was not communism. There was no forced labor and there was no requirement that they sell anything. And that's at the heart of what we want to get at tonight. They, didn't, they weren't required to sell this property. The people were doing it spontaneously, and they were doing it uh, you know, uh, voluntarily. They were just taking their property and selling it and giving it away, giving, meeting needs as they saw them. They were not required to do it. They were doing it. It was, it was certainly a voluntary thing. It's not communism. So here is Ananias and Safari, and you know you can't let you can't let Deacon Smith beat you out in the church. I mean, he's given uh, meet needs, and, and it's kind of like you know when I was a kid, the way we used to take up revival offerings. And uh, this is the way we take up revival offerings. It'd be the last Sunday morning, and the preacher would get up and he'd say, "Now we're going to take a we're going to take a love offering this morning for uh, for Brother So and So and our revival team." And he'd say, now, who's going to give, we'll start at $200. Who's going to give $200? The same guy every time. Everybody just kind of look over there. And he'd say, I'll give $200. And boy, we'd start, you know. Well, there were two or three guys that, you know, were in competition with uh, this fellow. And now how, how's he going to get by giving $200 to show us up? So hands would go up, you know, $200. They'd check out to see if... If he was given two, if he gave two, they'd give two. Now we'd go down to a hundred, you know. Now these are marvelous love offerings. And what was involved in all of that was competition. I mean, it's like the, it's like the cowboys and the Green Bay, you know. 
uh, $50 and so-and-so would look and say, well, you know, he's giving 50 How's he going to look if I don't? You know, everybody, you know, raise their hand and give 50 I mean, even down to the kids. And we just gather up just bags of money for these uh, revival preachers. I sure am sorry that that practice quit before I got into the uh, end of the ministry. But the whole idea was, you know, it wasn't really out of the heart of giving. It was just, you know, a matter of competition. And so they saw that these people were giving and there was no real, perhaps no real concern in their heart. So they sold their property and they got $3,000 for it. And they, come, they, 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 they came to the church and they kept 1000 back in their pocket and they brought the $2,000 and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And all the time, you know, keeping a thousand back. And, 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 and so, you know, how's that going to make us look? Nobody's going to know what we got for it. And so we're going to look just like the rest of them. That we have tremendous generosity and love. And so they laid this down at the apostles' feet. And I want you to follow in your notes. And we're going to take a look at this sin conceptualized. Point one is the definite declaration of Ananias. At least implied, if not... Uh, if not just out and out declared, Ananias just flat out lied. Um, who, who is going to know when, when a person sins? Who's going to know when a person is deceptful? The Holy Spirit is going to know. Somebody said that a that any secret sin on earth is a scandal in heaven. My word. That'll upset your pizza while you're watching Trapper John. Any secret sin on earth is a scandal in heaven. Who's going to know how much I, I got for this property? I'll, I'll bring this and, and lay it at the apostles' feet. God is going to know. For everything that's done is open and naked for His eyes. Look at point two, number two. There was pretension before the body. Now, now what is this sin that was committed? Verses three and four talk about the lie that he told, but there's something more basic than that. There's something deeper than that, the sin that was committed here. What was this sin? It was the deadly game of pretension, hypocrisy. Now, that word hypocrisy has such a background. It's worth, you've heard it before, but it's worth giving you some uh, background on it. Um, back in the ancient, war, ancient times, the Greek players, the Greek dramatists would get together and they would have their Greek dramas and one character would play several parts and he had these masks. They were masks on the end of a stick. And he'd come out on the stage and, uh, and he'd put this mask that had the smiley face. You've seen pictures of him in every drama department at any college. He'd put this mask before his face and he'd say the funny lines. And the people would laugh and they'd know that that mask meant that he was giving funny lines. He'd go off the stage, get another mask, come on. It'd be the downturn mask, the sad face. So he'd give the tragedy lines, the lines of tragedy. Same person behind the mask. The Greek word for that uh, activity was called, he was called the hypocritos. 
the hypocrite. And it meant one who hides behind a mask. Dan Oglesby is a wiry little preacher that pastored out near Abilene, Texas when I was in college. One night he was preaching to a group of preachers and he, he said, you know, he told his testimony. He was a grease monkey, a mechanic, when God called him to preach. He was about 40 years old. He said, God told him one day, get out from under that car and get into college and start preaching. He said, when I started college, what worried me was all that I didn't know about the Bible. He said, now what bothers me is all I do know about the Bible. He's a hypocritos, a hypocrite. He's a person who hides behind the mask. And I tell you, Christians are taskmasters at hypocrisy. I told my Friday luncheon group that on Wednesday night, if you ever watch Channel 8, 10 o'clock news, they have what's called, the segment called Wednesday's Child. It's about these little... Uh, children deprived that need parents. They bring them out and they give them the story. They're ch Wednesday's child. I know some Sunday's children. A Sunday's child is a person who puts on his Christianity, his religion, like a suit. And he comes to say the right things and go through the right motions on Sunday. And he goes and he takes off his suit on Monday. It's like the little compartments in my roll-top desk. He has a Sunday compartment. That's the way he talks on Sunday. That's the way he thinks on Sunday. That's the way he acts on Sunday. He has a Monday compartment. That's the way he talks on Monday. That's the way he talks on Tuesday. And he hides behind a mask. He's a hypocritos. I'm deeply troubled tonight because I don't live up to what I preach. And that's nothing. Probably you don't either live up to what I preach. And that used to really bother me until I found that the Apostle Paul didn't do it either. And the Scripture says, he says, I have not yet attained, I haven't arrived at what I've been preaching, but I'm striving for it. Sunday's children, hiding behind a mask. There's pretension in the church. There's pretension in the fellowship. Now, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to take off these masks and be totally honest with each other? Not, not really. But I want you to know tonight that our fellowship is incurably crippled for all our deceitfulness with God and each other and ourselves. That cuts, doesn't it? And the koinonia and the fellowship that God desires for the church is a fellowship that's transparent and open to ourselves and to God and to each other, a transparency of love. We know how to play the game, don't we? And I suppose that there's more politics played in the church than anywhere else. We know the right words to say, don't we? If somebody asks you, how are you doing? Well, just great, and down inside you're dying, hurting. Why can't we be transparent with one another and honest with one another? Why can't we love each other enough that I can come to you and say, I have this deep feeling, this, this heartache, this wound. You have offended me, whatever, and share with one another in a spirit of transparency. No pretension in the church. That's a deadly game. There's a third idea in this conceptualized sin. It was confronted by Peter. Look at verse 3. I mean, there's a direct confrontation. 
Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? That's pretty upfront talk. I mean, you might say that was a, uh, your uh, direct counseling method. Pretty uh, frontal, frontal, frontal approach, wouldn't you say? And, I, and I, you know, sometimes you think, well, now that just doesn't, uh, doesn't belong in the church. Somebody is coming up to somebody and say, you, you're a liar. But I look through the Bible and I find Nathan the prophet coming to David and putting his finger right in his face and saying, you're the man. And I turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul deals with that problem of lack of discipline in the church and he stands before the Corinthians and he says, you people are arrogant. And, and I look over there in the prophet Nehemiah and he stands before the people and he says, I contend with you. You're not to give your sons and daughters in marriage to these pagans. And then the scripture says, he plucks out their hair. And when you read that from the Hebrew, it says, he made them bald. That's pretty direct confrontation, I'd say. And John writes in 3 John about this woman in the church and he says her problem is that she wants to be first all the time. And John the Baptist stands before the king and says, you can't have her, she doesn't belong to you. And Amos comes to the, the prophet Amos, that, you know, that fig masher that we talked about with that fig stain on his fingers. And he stands before the king and the king says, you can't prophesy. And Amos said, you didn't call me to prophesy. God did. Then he told the king, your wife's going to become a harlot. That won't win you too many votes. And Elisha finds his his uh, servant boy, Jehazi. And Jehazi's been conniving, trying to get some of the spoils and the treasure. And Elisha confronts him with it. And he says, where have you been? What have you been doing? And immediately he's struck with leprosy. We don't want to be accountable, do we? I mean, it, you know, nobody stands up and tells me that I'm wrong. We don't want to be accountable to anybody, not even our boss, and so we file these grievances. And I sense that in the church there's a growing sense of unaccountability to ourselves, to each other, and to God. No one wants to be accountable. And so we have positions in the church and we feel real no accountability to them. You know I'm, saying, I'm telling the truth. We have positions in the church, obligations that we feel absolutely no accountability to. And people come on Sunday morning to their classes and find an ill-prepared class. Sometimes the teacher's not even there at all. And we feel no obligation, not to God, not to others. There are no parameters. This is, we have the priesthood of the believer. That means that I have freedom to do what I please. No, it means that I have a responsibility to God. And so Peter confronts him. Ananias, you've, you've sinned against God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then there's a fourth thing that happens in this sin. There is the judgment of God, verse 5. I don't want to understand it. 
I don't, I don't understand that. But A.T. Robertson says, and he's a lot smarter than I am, that great Greek scholar, he said, it was, this is just plain and simple, he said, it was the judgment of God. Now, how do you say this? Except to say this, that, that if the church is going to be the church of God, that, that church must recognize its accountability to God and the impending judgment when that accountability is violated. And this is the sin analyzed, if that's where you are in the text. This is the sin analyzed. Number one, the act was premeditated. I mean, they arranged to look good when they were bad. Now, now there's one thing to say about hypocrisy where a person really tries and fails. Now, um, you know, and, and, I, and, 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 the, and the people that I hear say, you know, well, I, at least I'm not a hypocrite. You know, I'm lost. I may be lost, but I'm, at least I'm not a hypocrite. And, 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 and sometimes, you know, there are people that out in the world, in every other aspect of life that are greater hypocrites, you know, than, 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 than the worst hypocrite within the church. There are people, I believe, that are actually, that, that, that of course, we're not what we want to be and could be, but we're trying. That's what the Apostle Paul has said. That's one thing. The hypocrisy that's in this text is not that. It's a premeditated attempt to look good when they're not. That's the hypocrisy that God judges. And secondly, when you boil the sin down at the heart of it, at the core of it, is pride. Is pride. Now, you know why Ananias didn't come in and say, Now, Peter, what I did was I sold the property. Yes, I did. I took the, I took the money. I got $3,000 for it. But I, I, I was a little bit afraid that I might need that money sometimes, some of it at least. So I kept 1000 for myself and I brought 2000 You know what kept him from saying, You know what, why he didn't say that? His pride. That's, that, that's humility, to come in and just be totally honest and say, you know, this is what I've done, and this is how I've handled it. So when you boil the sin down, at the heart of it is pride. Now, there are some areas of responsibility, and let me give you these, and then I'm through. The first area of responsibility that we have in the church to the Lord is to ourselves. To thine own self be true. There is, the, there is the responsibility of a basic integrity. We need to examine our motives and face the facts about ourselves. Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures to look up. First is Psalm 139, verse 23. Psalm 139. 39, verse 23. As soon as those pages stop rustling, I'll read it. 
And everybody's looking to see what it says. Search me, O God. Search me, O God. Not my neighbor. Not the person sitting to my right. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts to see if there be any hurtful way in me. Can you pray that tonight? It's like giving God a search warrant. It's the picture of someone going in where there is suspected, a suspected crime, where there is a con- uh, something concealed, and just with a search warrant, turning the house upside down. I mean, looking under the coffee table and in the, the lampshades and taking out everything out of the, out of the bureau and turning the bed upside down, giving it a thorough search. And um, before I came into this service tonight, this week before I preached this, prepared this, I went before God to do this. And I didn't like what I saw about myself. And I've got to confess that to you tonight. That the person who has the hardest time with this sermon is the one who's preaching it. What about your motives? What are your motives? What is at the heart of it? Search me, O God. I'm taking off the mask. I'm taking off the bars. Come into my life and turn it upside down. We have a responsibility to ourselves. We have a responsibility to God. Psalm 32. Would you turn to that psalm? Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I was miserable. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. We have an obligation, a responsibility to God. Then we have a responsibility to other other Christians. 
You see, the sin of hypocrisy always involves someone else. Always involves someone else. Now, 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 the, now the tragedy of this is that when you start reading through the book of Acts, you're going to come to the Pentecost experience and you're going to turn to chapter 4 and 5 and you're going to read about the great miracle that happened at the temple gate and how the church flourished under persecution. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that great note of song and victory that characterized that New Testament church begins to be drowned out by the dirge of this sin. And the sin of Ananias and Sapphira affected the church forever. And it's such a black mark against it. Can't you just hear the people of the city saying, yeah, that's what I thought about those people. Let me tell you something. When we are guilty of sin against God, it affects the whole body. The waves of hypocrisy wash against the shores of every life. I was asking my son, help me out in this sermon today. We were, of course, he was glad to help. I knew that in the back of my mind, he and I one day had talked about reading or hearing about this guy who is known as the great imposter. You've heard about him, haven't you? He slipped in. Todd, Todd, Todd reminded me of what he did. One, one day he slipped in and he, he warmed up, shot shots, and warmed up uh, as one of the players at the, at the uh, uh, NBA All-Star basketball game till they, till they recognized him. And he went out and he shagged fly balls one night at the All-Star game, the baseball game. Somebody, finally somebody saw him, ran him off. And he dressed up like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Now here's this guy, dressed up like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader and just about ready to get out on the field as one of them. And he, but he miscalculated. He was dressed up with shorts, you know, like they wear. It was cold and they had on their, uh, their uh, uh, warm-up suits. So they, thought they discovered him. Had his wig on and everything else that we'll not talk about here. But um, the great imposter. And that's what happened in the church. The great imposter. And he slipped in. They slipped into the fellowship of the church. When they were found out, they were judged by God but they'd already inflicted damage to the body and made the body the talk of the town. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're not so much concerned tonight about what we do not know about the Bible. What we are concerned about is what we know. And we're confronted tonight with our own, our own deception.
with our own failure to be honest with ourselves and with others and with God. We've hid behind the masks. We've played our games. And because of that, you've not, able, you've not been able to use the church in mighty ways. God, help us to lay aside the mask and to be honest with ourselves first and then with you, then with others. And to come to the place where we can walk total honesty before others and before God. And I pray tonight for your blessing upon the fellowship of this church that we might de indeed be the church that you created way back in the days past. Now for this moment of invitation we give to you, Father. Pray that you'll have your way in Jesus' name. Now these are our invitations. Would you look this way? First invitation is for you to come placing your faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior who died on the cross. You might fool others and yourself, but you don't fool God if you've never really truly been born again. You know that down deep inside. Have you ever really truly been saved? We want you to come claiming Christ as your Savior tonight, trusting Him for salvation. We invite you to come tonight in the second place to place your life in this church by statement or by transfer of your membership. Or maybe just to come to say, Pastor, I just want to take down the mask. I want to be all openly honest with God. I want this sin cleansed and taken from my life. I want you to pray with me about it. We'll give you that opportunity. This invitation is 183. It's only trusting. You can sing it without a book. We'll stand and sing. We invite you to come. <laughs>